Thanks, you guys. Well, I love this place so much. I'll tell you what, like I am, like we do Rush, like he said, and youth groups come from across Western Canada to Rush, and they always say the same thing. They're like, your church is unbelievable. Like, it's something unbelievable that we have going on at Willow Park where we have so many people with the greatest hearts, and they see all of our elders, they're like security guards at Rush, and they're like cleaning up puke and just doing all this stuff, and it's a beautiful place. And Willow Park South, oh my goodness, like trendy or what? Like gluten-free communion? Are you kidding me? We've got garbage can lids that look unbelievable on the stage. How do you pull that off? This place has got it going on. And it wasn't always like this. When, uh, when, we first, when Willow Park um, first started here in the South, it, was, it looked a lot more ghetto than this, and it was pretty ghetto. And uh, we had to do it, like we did youth here during Living Nativity. And so this whole room was full of junior high kids. And we thought, okay, what are we going to do in here? So we had this whole scene where we had the angel Gabriel. So we hung a rope around here. And we had, like, two big leaders in the back try to lift another giant leader, being the angel Gabriel. And he comes running off the stage like this with this rope tied around his waist. And it folds him in half over the children. And he's folding in half like this. So we're thinking, okay, we need a really funny game that we've never done before because we're here at the South. And we've got to try this out. So this is what we did is we filled the room full of smoke. And then we had all these little mouse traps on the stage. And kids had to come up and just like walk and get the prize without having any of their mouse traps go off. It was hilarious, except the fire alarm went off because this room is not created to be an auditorium, it's created to be a gym originally. So the fire department comes, all the junior high kids are outside in the freezing cold. And I'll never forget this. The fireman walks up on the stage and you can't see anything because it's smoky and there's just mouse traps going off all over the place. And he's like, what are you guys doing in this place? It was so funny. I'll tell you what, we got some good stories from that fire department. My, uh, <laughs> so I've got two little kids. Um, Emily's six, and she's the most hilarious little girl in the world, and Owen is eight. And uh, when Emily was born, everyone would come up to her and go, oh, hi, hi. And they would, like, get right into her face. And my boy, Owen, thought that her name was hi because of this. He got it all mixed up, and he started calling her hi. He'd see her, he'd be like, oh, hi, hi. So we started calling her hi. And uh, so we're here going to church, and things were great. And I remember so well, um, I pick up Owen, and then we have to go pick up Emily. So I get Owen, and his Sunday school teacher is right there. And I say, okay, Owen, this is awesome. You ready? Let's go get high. And then we're, we walk away, and, and I realized what I had said. And I looked behind me, and the Sunday school teacher is just glaring at me like, our youth pastor is getting high with his three-year-old. <laughs> That's not actually what happened. I didn't get high. It's pretty funny, though. Um, oh, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to take a picture off that flash drive. Do you know how to do that? Is that doable? Yeah, here's what happened. If you can get it, it's, it's called like Rev Bear. I put weird names on things. Anyways, here's what happened. We're at my house, and all of a sudden from upstairs, we have this balcony, and my little daughter starts yelling. She's like, Dad! And she's just screaming like so loud, Dad, get up here right now! And I'm like, I run, because it sounds like there's death in our house. I run upstairs, and she says, there is the hugest bug in the world up here. And so I look, and up against the window is, from the distance, looks like a gigantic bug. And I'm like, Emily, get back here, get back. And, um, and I go closer to it, and she looks at me, and she's got like tears in her eyes, and she says, Dad, I don't think it's a bug. I think it's a hummus bird. I'm like, what? 
a hummingbird. And so I get close and I realize it's a hummingbird in our house trying to get through the window and it's losing its mind. And I think, I can't deal with this business. So um, there's a guy named Steve Weens. His nickname is The Bear. He's been a youth leader since like 1999. Yeah, that's him. Thanks, you guys. That was amazing. So Bear comes upstairs and he, he takes, he comes up and he, he goes gently on the hummingbird and he just like, closes its tiny little eyes and he puts it in his hands like a little like superhero that's the bear look at that beard it's way better now but bear takes this hummingbird and he goes outside and he releases it it's like a scene from a movie and it was so beautiful and emily comes looks at me and she says that bear he's so magic <laughs> and i was like i think bear is magic this guy Bear, the Stephen Weens, is one of the most unbelievable guys that I have ever met in my entire life. Case in point, he will, he'll do anything that anyone else doesn't want to do. One day at the Ark, we used to have this old houseboat. This was like eight years ago. And, um, and one of the pontoons was slowly filling with water. And every morning, uh, I'd get up and do this. And, and he sees me going down to the beach with the pump. And he says, no, I'll do it. You go and have a coffee. And I'm like, seriously, Bear? Oh, thank you so much. Like, this is... I was so tired, and so I'm going up, I'm having a coffee, and I realized he doesn't know what he's doing. He's never done this before. And I, I yelled down, Bear, it's the middle pontoon, because there's, there's three pontoons, and one of them is sewage, and Bear doesn't hear me, and I realize he's going to assume it's the wrong pontoon. So I run down to the beach. As soon as I open the door, Bear's got the hose in the wrong pontoon, he's got the pump on, and he's staring at the pump to see if it'll go, and then, boom, the thing primes, and he gets filled in his face with sewage at like 30 PSI, just, just blasting in his face, and I turn off the pump, and I'm like, that was the worst, Bear. I'm so sorry. And I said, uh, here, I'll take over, and he goes, no way, man. I'm doing it for the kids. So then he takes it out of there, screws it back on. He starts working on the other pontoon. I'm like, aren't you going to jump in the lake? You're actually covered in sewage. He goes, no, man, doing it for the kids. He's like, this is the way that the bear lives. This guy is an absolute saint. We were on Skid Row one year, and, um, and it was the craziest situation. We're, like, we're just like praying for people, and it was a lovely situation. And all of a sudden, this guy drives by on a, like a 10-speed bike, and this guy was not homeless. He was a business guy with a suit and tie. He was just driving by. And Bear gets in his way, puts his arms out like this, and the guy stops. And he's face to face with a bear. And, and Bear goes up to him, and he wraps his arms around him, and he starts hugging him. And I, I'm thinking, what is he doing? Like, this is the freakiest situation. Why is he doing this? And this guy, um, who's just like all like stiff like this, all of a sudden takes his arms and he starts hugging Bear back. And then the guy starts crying. Just like, he starts crying a little bit. And then the guy just starts bawling. And then Bear starts praying for the guy. And it was the most beautiful thing. The guy gets off his bike. They sit on the curb. And, and they're praying for each other. And afterwards, um, I went up to Bear and I said, like, why in the world did you stop a biker, hug him, and start praying for him? And he said, I just felt like God was telling me to do that. So I did it. He was obedient. And, and Bear actually led this guy to the Lord just by this simple act of obedience. And Bear's one of those guys, he's like, he's a modern-day Robin Hood. All he's doing every day of his life is thinking of ways to serve people. And it's beautiful. He's got a very clear vision of what his world looks like. He works at a place called ABC Recycling. Um, and he, all he does all day is he serves the people the best that he can. 
He brings steak and stuff to all of his like workmates to just try to bless them. He prays for them. And he looks for things that he knows that people need. He'll actually like probably be inspecting people's cars this morning, seeing what they need on their cars. And then he'll go and put it on randomly. He's got a clear vision on how God's going to use him. And it is absolutely beautiful. And he is absolutely free. The fact is, I think that most of us don't really have a really clear vision for our lives. We don't really know why we're alive necessarily. Like our, The Barna Group did a study in 2007. They took 30,000 college students and they asked them, if you could meet with God and ask him one question, what would it be? An overwhelming number one response, far and away, is why am I alive? What is the meaning of life? Like, why am I here? This was far and away. And I think it's one of those things that once you get it right, it frees you for the rest of your life. Once you know why you're living, then tomorrow morning is really bearable. It's not just bearable. It's not just the most depressing day of the year, which I think it's the second Monday of January is the most depressing day of the year, they say. But it actually becomes a day where you wake up, you lift your head from your pillow, and you say to yourself, God, like, what is going to happen today? I am so excited because I know why I'm alive, and I know who is going to empower me today as I go. So let's just pray, and then we're going to get into this. Uh, Jesus, I pray that we would be a church that is 100% motivated. Jesus, I pray that you would call us, God, and I know that when you call us, you empower us. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to every single person in this room individually, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I think of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came and the disciples spoke with the gift of tongues, which was in everyone's language as they heard it. And God, you interpreted for every person individually. I pray, God, that your spirit would be in this place and that you'd speak to everyone individually in the same way. God, I pray that we would leave this place having heard from you, God, that you give us a passion, that you give us a vision for our lives that is so much bigger than just a natural vision, God, that it is supernatural, God, that you would that you would just speak to us so beautifully, God. We love you very much. Yeah, amen. Okay, can you go ahead and roll that? Check this out.
We went to the Flight Museum in Seattle, and there's a little area on war, and my children wandered into that spot, and they started watching the video, and, and my little girl came out, and she, she was crying, and she's like, why did we do that? I, and then my son was like, why did this start? And so I tried to explain to him how the world war started, and then they asked about 9-11, and I can't explain these things to them, and um, we can't even have the TV on in our house anymore. They heard news of the thing that happened in Pakistan with all the children that were killed at, this, at their school. And we live in this world where it just seems so hopeless. Sometimes we live in a world where it seems like, well, like what, it, what can we really do about it as the church or as individuals here in Kelowna? We went to um, a church in Africa, and I was so excited because they invited us to a church in the middle of this town called Garbatula. It's in the middle of nowhere, and I was so excited, like an African church, because I've seen... You know, we've all seen the movies. We've seen what a black church looks like, and I'm so excited. I can't wait, like a real African church. And we get there, and there's this um, pastor waiting there, and he says, who's the pastor here? And then, you know, they're all pointing to me, and my wife thinks this is hilarious, that whatever. That So this guy comes and greets me, and he puts out his hand like this, and I'm like, oh, great. He wants to hold my hand. So I, I hold his hand. He introduces himself. He's Reverend Garicha, and he's prepared this path and he's painted all these rocks white, and we're walking down the garden path together. He's holding my hand. I look behind me, and my wife's taking pictures of this whole thing, thinking it's hilarious. And we walk into this church, and I'm excited. We get into this church, and in front of me um, is sitting the 12 Christians in this entire village of Garbatula. There's 12 of them, and they were just somber. They were sitting in a circle, and, um, and they weren't singing. They weren't doing anything. They were just sitting there. And... And we sit in a circle across from them, and they all introduce themselves. They explained how they met Jesus. And um, 
Reverend Garicho was last. The person next to him had no arms at all. It was his best friend. What had happened was when Reverend Garicho, he found a Bible in this little village, and he accepted Christ. And what had happened was they were so angry that the Muslim extremists came and they burned down his house. They took his wife. They took his kids. He presumes that they're dead. They've never heard from them since. His best friend beside him, they actually cut off his arms. And every person had a story like this. And I was absolutely shocked. And, and then they asked us this. They said, can you give us advice <laughs> on how to follow Christ? And I'm sitting in front of all these saints and thinking, what do I have to say to you? Like, what in the world do I have to offer you? And then they started asking for prayer. What has happened in their village is there's been massive drought. And the town called Garbatula means two wells. And it's really famous in this little area of, of northern Africa because it's the only place where the wells continue to produce year after year. But the wells dried up and everybody's crops were failing. And this is an area of, of Africa called Turkana. You probably have heard of this place. There's massive drought. And everybody is dying in their village except the 12 people in that church. All of their crops are flourishing. And somehow they're the only ones in town with water. The Bible says this will happen, doesn't it? that our crops will not fail. And they had this massive debate on their hands. This is what Reverend Garicha did. He brought all of his crops and he brought them into his church and he opened the doors to the entire community that's 99.9% Muslim. The people that burned down his house, killed his family, he opened the doors and they all came in and he fed them. And he gave them his water. He essentially saved the children of the people that killed his. It's an unbelievable thing. And Melissa, my wife, is sitting there bawling. And, and she says, how did you do that? And Reverend Garicha looks at her and says, when you've received so much grace, how can you not but give it? He said, this is what we're created for. He said, they may have taken my family, but they can't take Jesus from me. And we are on this planet for one purpose. This is why we're alive. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he made it super clear with the Great Commission. This is why we're here. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he says, if you do this, surely I will be with you to the end of the day. If you go and make disciples, it's a guarantee of my presence on your life. And Reverend Garicha says, this is why I'm alive. I am a servant to them. This is how we do it. Because the method that Jesus used absolutely shocked the disciples in the same way. If you think about it, right before the Last Supper, Jesus walks in the room and he takes off his outer robe and he hangs it up and then he takes a towel and he ties it around the waist and the disciples were probably like, whoa, Jesus, why in the world are you doing this? This is like, this is what a slave does. Then he fills a basin of water and he kneels at their feet and the disciples are appalled at this behavior because the fact is, is there are different slaves in the Jewish culture, but the ones that wash feet are the lowest. Jesus took on the form of the very lowest slave and started washing their feet. And Peter was like, there's not a chance you're doing this. And Jesus said, if you don't let me do this, then you cannot have any part of me. He washes their feet, and then he says this. He says, go and do likewise. This is the whole model of the church. This is how we do it. Jesus said, if you want to become first, you must become last. 
You must become a servant to all. And the disciples started doing this. They started going from town to town. They started not just preaching the name of Jesus, but serving as Jesus served. They were radically different. And they also didn't just preach and serve. They came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power because God was with them. And it's crazy what happens next. The disciples are just like us. They start to worry. They're like, wait a second, I have no retirement now. Like, Peter's probably thinking, I, lo- I left my boat and my nets. The other guys are thinking, we left everything. We have no way to provide for ourselves. What were we thinking when we followed you, Jesus? And Jesus says, do not worry what you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. He says, the pagans need to worry about those things. Not you. If you are a follower of Christ, you do not need to worry about those things. He said, but seek first my kingdom and righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. I will take care of all those things if you simply seek first my kingdom. This is the most unbelievable offer in Scripture. Seek first the kingdom, and everything is taken care of. Have you guys heard of the Set for Life lottery? It's $4,000 a month for the rest of your life. It's like, wow, if I win this lottery, I am set. I will never worry about money again. Jesus is essentially offering something far greater than the set for life lottery. He's saying, seek first the kingdom, and I got you. Unbelievable. But I think we spend 99% of our lives providing for those needs ourselves, don't we? And all of our stress and our burden comes from those things. I think we've got the call 180 degrees wrong. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, and I'll take care of it. But we seek first taking care of those things, and then the kingdom comes second. We're so driven by our needs, and we play God. And then we don't experience him. We feel far from him, and we wonder why. We seek all the things that he is meant to provide. We've sort of been told our whole lives that we have to provide for our families. And Jesus says, no, you do not have to provide for your family. We're we're sort of told that we have to get a career. And Jesus is like, no, you don't need a career. You need to get a passion. You need to get a calling. You don't need to provide for your family. You don't need to provide for yourself. You need to simply seek first the kingdom and let me be your provider. What an amazing, unbelievable offer from our very youngest kids, we're, we're asking them already, what are you going to be when you grow up? How are you going to provide for yourself when you grow up? And it's the wrong question. It is how is God going to use you when you grow up? How are you going to be a vessel when you grow up? How are you going to seek first the kingdom and fulfill the Great Commission? That's why you're alive. When we get to heaven and we stand before God, we are going to have to give an account for how we spent our gifts and our time. We're not going to have to give an account for how we provided for anybody because that's God's job. And if we spend our lives doing that, it will be completely wasted. I just think so many times, if I look around Kelowna, I think we'd all agree that most people spend their lives on maintenance. Just maintenance. Maintaining your homes, your cars, your leases, your mortgage. It's just mundane, useless, worthless. We have so many dormant spiritual gifts and so many miracles that we're missing. And 
I think if we were to all sort of agree with something, we would say that our greatest stress in life, the thing that brings us down the most, is worrying about our future. This is the biggest area of stress. And when God says, I will simply take it from you. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, and I got it. It's the greatest invitation in the world that should free us as brothers and sisters. Amen? It is the most freeing invitation imaginable. I want you to imagine God. Scripture says that his hand stretches the universe from the farthest star to the farthest star. This is God. And right now in the book of Revelation, it says that millions of angels are shouting worship to him. If one angel were to walk into this room, Every single time it happened in scripture, people shook and became like dead men. They were so afraid of these angels. They were terrifying, huge, mighty, majestic. If one came into this room right now, we would all be on the floor begging for our lives. And there's millions shouting his name right now. And he says that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. These images are huge. Because the earth and all of its riches, things that seem so important, are only worthy to be his footstool. (laughs) Completely useless. He's so mighty and majestic that the riches of this place pale in comparison. They are simply his footstool. It's a crazy image. We're created for so much. And I watch that video and I think, man, what, what are we supposed to do in this world? How are we supposed to live? And we've heard this scripture over and over and over to the point that I think it's lost some of the power. But I want you to consider this. Jesus says, let your light shine before men or others that they may see your good deed and glorify our Father who's in heaven. You think, okay, let your light shine. What does that mean? Go and be a good person. Just be really nice and people will follow Jesus. That's not it at all. You see, darkness is vastly inferior to light, is it not? Light overcomes darkness in an instant, but darkness has no dominion over light at all. When we simply bring the light of Christ who dwells within us into any dark situation, the darkness flees. It runs. We really, really underestimate the power of Christ within us. Like light has incredible power over darkness. Unbelievable This is why Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist, said this. He said, Mother Teresa is the great white whale for the atheist in me. You're thinking, that's not much of a compliment. (laughs) But she was definitely not fat. It's because he cannot ignore her. She lived the Great Commission. The light within her diffused so much darkness that it still resonates to this day. The police commissioner in India was sent to shut her down. Because she wasn't supposed to, in the early years, teach about Jesus at all. Her mission was simply supposed to help um, basically be a hospital. And that's what all that she was allowed to do. But rumor got out that she was teaching about Jesus, so the commissioner came to legitimately shut her down. And when he got there, she was caring for a poor sick man. She was putting potassium on his open wounds that actually had worms coming out of them. And... The police commissioner said that the stench was so terrible from this man, she couldn't get near him. Or, sorry, he couldn't get near her. And so he left, and as a result, he pardoned her because he didn't want to go back. Another time, she was praying for a lady out on the streets when a dog walked by with a newborn baby in its mouth. It had been left in the garbage. And Mother Teresa 
chased down the dog, and with her tiny little fists, she beat down that dog. She grabbed the newborn baby. She brought it back home where it died with her. And some people said, like, where's the power of Jesus in that? You saved this baby, but it simply died. And she said this. She said, it could have died being chewed on by a stray dog. Instead, it, was, it, it died and was ushered into the presence of his Savior while being loved by a woman who cried over him. This was the life that Mother Teresa lived. And our, our world is desperate for us to live our calls in the same way. A few years ago, um, a couple of our young adults were hiking in the forest, and they came across a lake, and they came across a really nice car in the middle of nowhere, and it had all been beat up because it was out in like the middle of trucking roads. And it was still running, and they thought this was strange, and they went to the vehicle, and they found that there was somebody in it. It was a young man who committed suicide, and, and they were staring at this guy in this car, a really nice car, a really good-looking guy who decided that life was too hard or something. They didn't know his story, but they were broken by what they saw. And they came to me, and they said, what if, what if we had reached this guy? He's our age. What if he didn't know Christ, and what if Christ would have made him free, and we never invited him, we never seek our friends out, we're so selfish, we're so self-engaged, and from that point forward, they made a little pact that from that day on, they were going to do something to change this world. They weren't going to simply be passive observers, they weren't going to make this world their playground anymore. This world is our war ground. With global warming and increased droughts, and food shortages as a result. They say that our world will hit 15 billion by 2100, which is our carrying capacity for the planet. It's coming very, very quickly. The fact is, is that we as a church need to be on the forefront. Did you know that the church is the only one really doing anything as far as global aid goes? With the Ebola outbreak, who was there? It was the church. It was only the church. My friend who's on the front lines with Samaritan Purse said it's only the church there. It's Samaritan's Purse. It's MCC. It's World Vision. They're the only ones there. They say that 45,000 people would die every day from starvation. That was 10 years ago. Now it's 30,000 people. And who has changed that? It's been the church. It's been nobody else. And the church needs to step up. And I believe it's now our time to step into this role that God has called us. In Somalia right now, there's a civil war. And some militant groups, including Al-Shabaab, have been fighting. There's this transitional Somalian government, and it is not doing well. And they're fighting like crazy. And the people are fleeing. They're trying to get to this um, refugee camp called the Dab. And this mother had to flee her little town of Mogadishu, and so she sold everything that she had. She had to get her kids across the desert. It's 100 kilometers away. And so she left with them, a family of six. She had a 21-day walk ahead of her, and two days in, one of her children dies in the, of malnutrition and just dehydration, and it's her youngest one. And she's got this decision because Mogadishu is back two days, the camp is 19 days ahead. What does she do with her baby that just died? She had to bury the baby and move on. By the time she got to this camp, she lost four of her kids. She later learned that she also lost her husband to fighting in Somalia. 
She shows up with almost none of her family left. The fact is that she should never have been in that desert. In reality, the church should have stepped up. In reality, the West should have stepped up. We have so much that that mom should never have been put in that situation. When we went to India, we we found that the, the orphans are just walking around and they'll try to do anything to get money. And so often they'll, they'll mutilate themselves or hurt themselves because then this makes a more compelling case. Often they'll put their hands underneath train tracks. They'll do various things to disfigure themselves. And then they'll come up to you and show you their wound and then hopefully get money. And I was broken by this because the fact is, is that these orphans shouldn't have to hurt themselves to get money from us. It shouldn't be the way that it is. And I think of Mother Teresa, she was always pressured to do more. People from the West would say, Mother Teresa set up all these orphanages, do all this stuff. And she always said, it's not about how much you do. She says, do small things with great love. She simply said that if we all stepped up and did this, that this world would be radically changed. She inspired so many people. A young, uh, engaged French couple met with her, and then they wrote her right before their wedding, and this is what they said. They said, we will be married in a month. We've asked our relatives and friends that instead of getting gifts for us, they give the amount they would have spent to Mother Teresa's poor. Little acts with great love. Another young woman wrote a letter, and this is what she said. She said, I'm sending a money order for 525 francs. This amount is more or less what I would spend on my evening meals for a month. I'm giving up my evening meals at the boarding house where I live. I thought someone like myself, who thank God is in good health, can give up a meal to help those who are hungry. And then this is what she wrote. She said, I've decided to send the exact amount every month. Like, unbelievable. She's giving up her suppers. Back when the, um, our camp, which is the ark, we were expanding quickly, and we, couldn't, we didn't have enough infrastructure to get more kids on the camp. And a guy in our church found out about this, and he said, what do you need? And we really needed... Um, another boat to get people to the campsites, a big barge. And what he said was unbelievable. He said, well, we're building a house and we're going to be putting carpet in next week, but we don't really need carpet, do we? And I was like, well, that's kind of your own call. And he said, no, we don't need carpet. And he wrote me a check for the amount of the barge and it was his carpet that he never carpeted his house. And for him, it was a small sacrifice But it was unbelievable because that year we allowed so many extra kids to come to camp and so many of those kids met Christ and so many of those kids today are leaders with us because of his carpet. (laughs) Do you guys see how that works? It's unbelievable. This is a completely different way to live. It's the exact opposite of how the rest of the world lives, isn't it? We're so consumed with this world that's simply the footstool of our God. The fact is, is that this way of life leads to life. Jesus said, if you want to find life, you must lose it for my sake. I just love the scriptures. I really love the Apostle Paul. He's one of the most inspiring characters in all of human history. Just imagine if I said, you guys, we're really lucky. We have a special guest today. It's the Apostle Paul. You would all be so excited. Like, the Apostle Paul is going to come up and give the greatest sermon Ever, except I don't think he was that good of a preacher, though. I think he said that himself, didn't he, Glenn? Yeah, he wasn't even that good. But we would all expect him to show up and be, like, pretty good-looking, like, pretty rugged, right? It's the Apostle Paul. He would have, like, a tunic on. Like, he'd have some pretty sweet, probably facial hair. He'd be a good-looking guy. 
But then as the Apostle Paul walks in, I would imagine that we would shudder at the appearance of this man. He was absolutely hideous. Probably lots of you would even weep at the sight of the Apostle Paul. He was so disfigured. He was so messed up. Scripture says that he was stoned and beaten with rods so many times. When you're stoned, they throw rocks at you until they presume you are dead, until you are a broken heap in the road. His orbital bones would have all been broken. His nose would have been shattered. His jaw would have been broken. His skull would be disfigured. On top of that, he was flogged five times, like in the Passion of the Christ. Forty times is death. Thirty-nine times is almost death. Basically, no skin left. This happened to Paul five times. He would have no skin. His face would be one giant scar. He would be so hideous. And based upon that image, sorry about that, Paul walks into Philippi and he encounters a girl who is following him and Silas and is just won't leave him alone. And she keeps saying over and over, these men are the servants of the most high God. She's saying, I know who these guys are. And you think, wow, what a compliment. Thanks, girl, except for not thanks, girl, because this girl is a fortune teller. She's demon-possessed. And the Greek word for the demon in her is this, is pneumopython, which is the python spirit. And this might seem like no big deal at the outset, except for that it is. In Delphi, a high priest named Pythia was previously possessed by that demon. And as a result of that, made untold money telling fortunes. They were enslaved to her in Delphi. Now this demon is alive in this girl. Paul and Silas are entering Philippi, and they cannot do any work as long as this is going on. So they have to make a decision. They haven't even preached yet. And they know full well that if they cast this demon out of this girl, that their owners, her owners are going to freak out. But they can't do any work as long as this demon is around. And so what does Paul do? He casts the demon out. The owners come along, freak out, send him to the courts. And what do they do? They flog him again. But usually a flogging is a flogging, which is almost death, and it's severe. So when the Bible says that he was severely flogged, it means it was absolutely terrible. This was the worst flogging likely that Paul received. And then they throw him in prison, and they tell the guards this. They know that something's up with Paul, so they say, I want him in the inner cell. I want stalks on his feet. And they said to the guard, you watch him carefully. Okay, imagine this. He's been flogged. He's basically dead. Like, he is on death's door, and they're worried about him escaping. And him and Silas are laying in prison. And they're bleeding all over the floor. And the Bible says that they are worshiping. They're singing. They're praying. This is crazy. I think about when Stephen got stoned and his face was like that of an angel. The Holy Spirit was radiating through him. This is a similar situation where Paul and Silas are on death's door. And I want you to also imagine the fact that it's dark in the Middle East at around 6, 7 o'clock. And so the prisoners would likely go to sleep around 7, 8 o'clock. It's midnight. They're laying on the ground singing. And the prisoners are all awake, way past their bedtime. They cannot believe what they're seeing here. Suddenly, there's an earthquake. And every single door in the prison opens at once. 
And not only did their stocks fall off of their feet, but everybody's chains fall off. And everybody in the whole prison is free. Everyone is free. It's insane. The jailer wakes up and sees what has happened because he's asleep. He's like, forget this. I'm going to bed. He wakes up and he's like, oh, great. Everybody's free. He takes his sword. He's about to kill himself because it's great shame in that culture. If you are a guard and somebody gets away, they'll publicly execute you shamefully. So he's going to take his own life. And what does Paul say? He goes, whoa, no. He says, don't do it. This is crazy because Paul should let him kill himself because freedom is right outside the door. Comfort is right outside the door. Friends, a warm bed, food, everything is outside there. He can go and take it. It's all his. And Paul says, no one is leaving. You get that? None of the other prisoners leave. They'd rather stay in prison with Paul and Silas, seeing what they've seen, than be free. Whoa. None of them leave. The jailer's like, what? Nobody's leaving. This is incredible. The jailer falls at Paul's feet, and he starts to tremble, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then he tends their wounds and brings them to his house, gives them a meal, and the whole family receives Christ. I'll tell you what. It's an unbelievable thing. That on that floor in that prison cell, Paul had the very heart of God. He cared more about that man's soul than he did his own freedom or comfort. Because Paul said this. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And listen to this. This is, this is unbelievably important. He said, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. This is the meaning of life. Paul would rather have fruitful labor, then go free. Because that's the whole purpose of life. He was driven by this one purpose in his life, and it, it educated every decision that he had to make from that point forward. Fruitful labor. How do I have fruitful labor? It's by staying in this prison. It's by leading this man to Christ and his family. And who knows what has gone on from that point. And the fact is this, is that that is where we get our credibility that is when people will stay in prison to hear what we have to say. When we truly serve people and put their needs above our own. Paul said, don't just love in word and tongue. He says, don't just come to church and talk about it. But he says, love and action and truth, do it. Like, stop the talking. Stop the meetings and get out and get on to it. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, we are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You get that? We're created to do good works. Why are you alive? To do good works. And God has prepared those for you. Most people miss out on what God has for them. You were created to fight God's kingdom, to be the light of the world. And light has so much power over darkness. It's ridiculous. This is where real life is found. Remember why you were created. Do not get distracted. Do not waste a second of this year. 2015 is not to be wasted. Press into who you are. Scripture says he's given us not a spirit of timidity, but one of power. God has created you to do this. And here's the thing is that when you seek first the kingdom, God will give you and empower you with supernatural spiritual gifts. 
God asked Moses to speak for him. And Moses was like, no, God, I can't do it. Ask Aaron. He can talk good. And God says to Moses, Moses, who made your mouth? Go out there and talk. Do it. When we go on Skid Row with the kids, we, we simply go and we just love people. We do a spa for the ladies. And we have a band for whoever wants to come and play in the band. It's beautiful. But we tell the kids, these are all vehicles for you to pray with people. And the kids are like, I have to pray for a large gangster man. <laughs> I am intimidated. And we just said, simply say, dear Jesus, thank you for, say his name. And let the Holy Spirit start to pray through you. And I'll tell you what, it happens every time. The kids come back and they're like, I don't even know what I was saying. God just started using me and he gave words to my mouth. This is what scripture says. Simply open your mouth. Don't worry about what to say, Jesus says. He says, when that happens, I will tell you what to say. It'll happen to you. I think about James. He's about to be thrown off the temple. And he's thinking, do I have enough courage to stand up for Jesus, my brother? Do I have it? And then he says this. I think I do because Elijah, who called down fire from heaven, was a man just like us. He said, I can do it because Elijah was a man and look what he did. I'm just a man and I can do this because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This is a beautiful call. They all stepped into their destinies. And here's the thing. I want you to seriously consider this year. What has God called you to do? I believe that when we receive Christ, he puts within us spiritual gifts, but then he also puts within us a passion. Things that make us so mad. Just like angry. In a holy way. When we watched that video earlier, which scenes caught your attention the most? Which scenes did you say that cannot happen? What things, when you watch the news, make you the most angry? Let me ask you another question. When you were the very closest to God that you've ever been, what was the natural passion that flowed out of that? When I received Christ, I'll never forget it. I was 14 when I truly met him. I was at camp. And around that campfire, two things happened. Number one is I was convicted of sin. Like, I've never been convicted before. Number two, he gave me this overwhelming passion for the lost. For all the friends that I saw in that circle that didn't know Christ. And immediately... I immediately, I knew I was supposed to do camps for the rest of my life. And there's so many times where I doubted the call, where I was lazy with the call, where I was distracted from the call. But the fact is, is that when God calls you, he usually gives you a passion. And if you step into them, you find life. When you do the things that he's prepared you to do, you find life. When you ignore them, you dwindle away. Think about the Great Commission. He says, surely I will be with you if you, if you do the Great Commission. So many people would say, I don't know God. I have no relationship with him. And that's simply because we are not fulfilling the Great Commission. You know that 90% of Christians have never, ever led somebody else to Christ? We are called the Great Commission is our mission in life. This is it. This is all we're supposed to do. Most of us have not stepped into it. We feel un, unable. We feel like we don't know what to say. And I think we go about it the wrong way. I remember when I was in university, I just started praying every morning because my youth pastor at the time said, just pray that God would use you today. So I woke up in the morning. I read my Bible and I prayed, God, today use me. I'm going to see what it is. And I went to school just with my eyes open. And there was three guys in my class. And I'm like, these guys need Jesus. So 
I started to carpool with them, and I started to, like, talk to them about Jesus. I started playing, like, DC Talk in the car. I don't know what I was trying to do. And, um, and I tried all year long, and nothing happened, nothing. And then right near the end of the year, I'm sitting there in the computer lab, and God specifically gave me this prompting to go talk to this guy, this redheaded guy. And I didn't even know him really at all. His name was Charles. And, and it's just like, what? I'm like, God, I don't even know him. And I don't even know what to say, even if I did know him. So I just like all day, we just like talk to Charles, talk to Charles. And I said, well, God, I, I've been praying that you'd use me. So I went up to him and I said, hi, Charles. I think I'm supposed to talk to you and I don't know why. And Charles says, that's great. He said, aren't you a Christian? And I said, yes. And then he said, that's awesome. I got a lot of questions. So we sat down and talked. And that night, I'm just sort of sitting at my house, and I get a phone call. And it was Charles, and he is, like, yelling on the other end of the phone. He's like, I came home. I found a pastor. I received Jesus tonight. And he's just going nuts. He received Christ that night. And I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know what to do. But I was obedient, and it led for him to go find someone that knew. <laughs> the fact is God used me because I was available. And God has called you to do things that are unbelievable. The fact is, is that we're entering a period of time where our world needs us more than ever. And we're entering a period of Kelowna where consumerism is growing like crazy. They say that we spent $450 billion on Christmas five years ago. This year it was $600 billion. I'm sure in five years from now it will be $750 billion. The fact is, is that we are empty and we're trying to fill it with goods. And Kelowna needs a church that is motivated that says, you're not going to find it at the store you're going to find it in Christ. The fact is, is that our neighbors need us. Our friends need us. What if you started to offer prayer to them? What if you started to use your computer time at night to write messages to people encouraging them and then offering prayer? I'll tell you what. Offering prayer takes any relationship from the shallowest place to the deepest place immediately. Suddenly, they start to give you prayer requests. And then you can follow up, hey, I've been praying for this and this and this. How is it going? Is there anything else I can pray for? Eventually, as you pray for them, even from a distance, you can say, hey, I'm here now. Can I pray for you in person? And then say, hey, do you know Jesus? Would you like to know Jesus? Do you see how prayer changes everything? Start to offer prayer. It's not rocket science. You don't need any ridiculous model on how Jesus is the bridge between the chasm of sin and life. You just need to pray for people. They don't need stupid analogies or illustrations. I'm sorry if you use those. <laughs> but start to give God your days. Start to give God your coffee breaks and say, how are you going to use me in this coffee break? Your golf games, your days at school, your days at work, your days on your computer. How are you going to use me as I am on the computer now and wasting time on Facebook? Use me in these messages somehow. Use me. Paul says to for the Corinthians, whatever you, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything in our life is for him and for our call. I consider Paul, what was Paul? Tent maker. That's what he did for a living. He made tents. But when you think of the Apostle Paul, do you think, oh, that guy made tents? You don't think that. That's not why he was alive. It's how he survived, but it's not why he was alive. A lot of you are not missionaries or pastors or things like that, but you're just like Paul. And the mission is exactly the same for you as well. 
Bob Goff is one of my new favorite authors, and he said this. He said, pick a fight. The fact is, is that if we're all created to fight, aren't we? And if we're not fighting darkness, then we actually start to fight ourselves. People start to fight and complain about their church simply because they need to fight something. You ever realize that? If you find yourself critical about other Christians or organizations, it's probably because you haven't picked a fight against something that is darkness itself. Paul says to the Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. And the Jewish listeners would have known what that meant because citizenship meant a lot because a citizen is a retired soldier. When Paul said that our citizenship is in heaven, he's saying when you get to heaven, then you're a retired soldier. But as long as you're on this planet, you are a soldier. You are created to fight. You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why you're alive. Step into it. Because when you find your passion and when you lose your life for it, then life comes to you. And 2015 will be your best year you've ever had. Like it will be the greatest year in your history. (laughs) I know it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. And, and after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, they had the Last Supper together. And then they took communion together. And this symbol was this. This symbol was, are you with me or are you not with me? Are you willing to lose your life? He says, I'm going to lose my life. My body's going to be broken. He says, are you going to lose your life too? He says, are you with me? Are you a servant? Are you going to wash people's feet metaphorically, obviously, for us. But are you with me? And the symbol that he used was communion. And that's what we're going to do in this place as well. So we're going to worship. And I, I encourage you, if you're saying 2015, I'm with you. I am actually serving the Almighty God. This year, use me, take my life. I'm seeking the kingdom. I'm taking the provision and giving it to you. Then come forward and take the bread and, and the grape juice which is symbolizing the fact that Christ gave himself up and he calls us to do the same. And just in your own time, take it when you feel like you're ready to make that commitment. And we're going to worship now. Are we going to do two songs? Two. Okay. So you have two songs to do it, so you don't have to all rush up at once. There's some children here. We don't want trampling happening. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people, Lord, that defeat darkness by the light that is within us, Lord. God, when we look at the world and it seems so out of control and it seems like we are so weak, God, you say that we are unbelievably strong because darkness is so inferior to the light within us, God. Give us a boldness, Jesus, like Paul. Help us, Lord, to be a people that see life like he did, Lord. Where if I go on living, it means fruitful labor and that's why I'm alive. God, give us a passion. I pray that everyone in this room, Jesus, would have a fire that you give within us, Lord, that you would just bring to light those things that you've called us to do. God, the fights that you've caused us to pick, the things that make us angry in a holy, righteous way. And God, give us the courage to step into them and do something about them, God. I pray that Kelowna would be a radically different place because of this amazing congregation, God, this family that you've given to us. God, please use us. We love you, God. And Lord, we want to tell you how much we love you as we take his communion now, God. We are with you.
we are willing to give up our lives for the sake of Christ. Yeah, use us now, Lord. We love you. Amen.